Hey, what's up? I'm Warren Martinick, and this is the Marvel Card Collectors Podcast. Hello, everybody. My name is Ian Taylor, and you are listening to the Marvel Card Collectors Podcast, your weekly digest of hobby goodness. I've been looking forward to this conversation for longer than this podcast has existed as I've spent untold hours and unmentionable dollars chasing the cards that this company have made. Rittenhouse Archives are responsible for some cards in my collection that literally bring me to tears of joy when I look at them. They also created some of the most beloved Marvel cards ever, and arguably the Marvel cards today would be much less healthy if it weren't for their tenure. So it gives me enormous pride and pleasure to be able to say that today brings Steve Charandoff, president of Rittenhouse Archives, to the show. Steve, welcome to the podcast, sir. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. Um, I've I've read quite a lot of things, you know, quite a lot of bios of you online. um, And I I remember seeing you on uh, at least one uh, podcast on YouTube a couple of years back, which I thoroughly enjoyed watching. Um, but I kind of wanted to get, get hear it from your mouth. How did you get started in in trading cards? What was what was your route oh, into the hobby? Wow! Now we're going real far back. Yeah, um, let's, let's do it. This this goes uh, <laughs> this goes back to the sixties when I was not even uh, I was in single digits at that point. Wow! Okay. Um, so I, I collected cards. I've been collecting cards. I still do. I've collected cards all my life. Um, you know, like a lot of people who I'm sure are listening to this or watching this, um, you know, you either have that that card collecting gene in your DNA or you don't. And and I do, um, which is not coincidental to my being in the position that I've been in professionally. Um, although I didn't set out to to do this for my my livelihood or my career. Um, it just sort of evolved that way. And, you know, like a lot of things, uh, you know, some serendipitous moments kind of brought me to a place where I fortunately could make that decision or make that choice to, yeah, let's, let's get involved in, in trading cards as, as a business, um, instead of just collecting. But I've always, I've always been a collector. Um, I, and I collected everything from, a very early age, sports cards, non-sports cards. I remember having the the, the Marvel cards from the sixties. I'm pretty sure those would have been the um, the Philadelphia Gum Company cards, yeah. um, which of course are are tough to find these days. But yeah. in, any, in any case, um, so I collected all my life and. Um, well, I'll try to give you the real quick version that led me up to starting Rittenhouse. Well, so, I'll I, I tell you what I want to dig into. I want to have, okay. a, I want to have a little, I want to have a little chat and hear what it was like, um, at Fleer Skybox because, okay, um, fair, uh, fair the, enough. That's where the, it really began in terms of Marvel, exactly. Well, sure. Ken, Ken Baroff, who was episode, uh, I want to say 51, but I might be wrong. Um, he mentioned mm-hmm. you on that episode um and your kind of your kind of approach and passion for the hobby so so how did you how do you get to to work there and work with ken 
Ken and I actually didn't work together much at all. Um, we overlapped for a very short period of time. So, um, okay, so just to recap, I guess a little bit of the corporate history here. So I joined FLIR in 19, at the end of 1994, um, after having worked for another trading card slash memorabilia company and scoreboard classic games. Um, and I'd done other things before then too, that were somewhat hobby related. Um, but in any case, um, I, so I, I was hired by Bill Jemis, um, at FLIR at the time that was, Okay, so that was in 94. They had just, Bill had just started the entertainment card division for FLIR, which basically at the time was all Marvel. Yeah. Um, Bill, of course, went on to work as, I think he was president of Marvel Comics for a period of time after his time at FLIR. But in any case, um, Bill wanted to expand from Marvel cards into other franchises. But very shortly after... I joined him, which would have been fall of 94. We ended up buying Skybox. And that took place, I guess, early 95, I want to say. Maybe the very tail end of 94, perhaps. But the two companies, um, you know, were running sort of on parallel tracks. We, you know, there was a lot of duplication of effort. And so when the two companies came together, the the powers that be had to decide, well, we're not going to keep everybody doing, you know, all these different things when, when some of these tasks can be combined. And um, they were determined to move the company from the, the skybox portion of the business up to um, Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which is where FLIR was based. And Ken, if I'm recalling correctly, made the choice that he was not going to move. He, I, I think he was given the opportunity to move, but, um, but I, he had, you know, he had family and roots in North Carolina. And I think that's, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that was just a choice. And that, that was true for several people. Um, I ended up taking on uh, the Star Trek business from Ken, um, among some other franchises. And so anyway, that, so the two companies came together and we then had, um, DC Comics and Marvel Comics together, along with a bunch of other things that were, you know, all of a sudden we went from, you know, being, you know, limited to just these few franchises to all of a sudden, boom, we've got mm. this enormous business to run. And it was really pretty cool um, and great for me because I on on a lot of this business. But I was not really involved in Marvel directly at that, at that beginning period. So Dan Buckley, who is now the publisher of Marvel Comics, um, great guy, couldn't have been better suited to running the Marvel trading card business at the time. And I can't think of a better guy to, to be the publisher of Marvel Comics since. I mean, he's, it, it's quite remarkable. All the people that, that were involved in some way with the, the Marvel trading cards and other aspects of the, the Fleer Skybox entertainment card uh, business. You know, what some of those people have gone on to do has mm. been, been remarkable. Um, but Dan in particular, uh, you know, it, it couldn't, couldn't ask for a better guy to, to head that up. But 
so Dan was involved, and then there was a few other guys. Uh, Ron Peraza, who I think works at DC Comics now. Um, Steve Domzowski, who I don't believe is in the industry anymore. I think after his time at FLIR, I, I think he went on to just other things. Um, so those guys were really running the, the Marvel business. But what's interesting to me and what your listeners might or viewers might find interesting here is that um, at one point we we bridged that gap from just make, you know mass producing everything. And the numbers back then, you know, in the early 90s, mid 90s were staggering until yeah. the market sort of I mean, it imploded a little bit on itself. Yeah. Um that's a whole other topic for maybe another day. Yeah. Um, sort of mismanagement of of the trading card industry in general, and and mm. you know anyway, I won't get into that right now. But once the, once the industry started to contract, and now we were back to more of the hardcore collectors. I'm sure a lot of the people who were were watching this are among those people who collected back then. Um, so. The sketch cards became, you know, a thing. Oh, yeah. Now, those guys might remember this differently, but this is how I remember it. So I just, I'm going to phrase it that way. Um, they were putting together the Fleer Ultra Spider Man 97. card set. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was the, as far as I can remember, that was the first card set that ever had. Marvel sketch cards. In. That's right. And there were very few. They were very, very scarce. And I know they're quite valuable today if you can find them. Oh, yeah. And there's almost no unopened boxes of that stuff around. Um, anyhow, I was always big into, with the, the other products that I was making, I was always big into doing like, you know, really unusual, one of a kind, rare type, type stuff, goofy things that I thought would, you know, would appeal to the diehard collectors. So my recollection of this is that I said to those guys, we were just sitting around, you know, shooting the breeze one day. I said, look, why don't you, why don't you just get some of these artists to do some one of a kind sketch cards and throw them into the product. And I seem to remember it's a little fuzzy in my mind. So bear with me here, but, I seem to remember suggesting that they see if Stan Lee would, would do some sketch cards. Cause like what would be like the Holy grail of Marvel trading card collectible, you know, whatever it might be, you know, mm -hmm. like you can, you can foil stamp this and you can do lenticulars with that and you can number things and parallels and but I mean, holy smokes. I mean, if you got Stan Lee or I mean, at, at the time, I don't think Jack Kirby was still alive. And I think Ditko just refused to do anything when he yeah. was alive. Um, but we thought, OK, I thought, what, why, don't, why don't you guys go ask Stan Lee? Because he Stan was always like accessible. And we were part of Marvel anyway at the time. Mm. We Marvel was our parent company. So. They got one card done by Stanley, just just one. Um, but anyway, 
I'm going to take credit for for I'm not going to take credit for all of it, but I'm going to take credit for a lot of this. That the that the genesis of doing you know the sketch cards that are randomly inserted into the product because I had seen that that uh, like with Simpsons, Matt Groening had done the Art to Bart cards, yeah. and there had been a couple of instances like that, and I thought, well, what's a more natural thing to do than than sketch cards for Marvel because it's all you know that, that's all that it is really. It's at that point it was just comic book art. Mm. Um, we hadn't really gotten into the movies in any meaningful way at that point. So anyway, long story short, um, that's that was sort of like the first baby step that we all took into the realm of sketch cards. So a little bit after that time, things that FLIR started, FLIR Skybox started to unravel. The, the corporate structure was a mess and um the, the powers that be at that time decided that they were going to get out of uh, entertainment cards. They just, they didn't see the future in it. It was all about sports cards. So slowly, uh, you know, all those other guys were either let go or they just moved on because they, they just, you know, had other opportunities. Um, and they knew that there wasn't really a long-term future there. Um and like I said, you know, these guys all seem to land on their feet doing great things, especially yeah. Dan Buckley. Um, so at the end, I was kind of the last, I, I know I was, was the last full-time employee at FLIR Skybox who was fully dedicated to the entertainment division. Um, there was a lot of other people who worked on entertainment, but but they their attention was divided from sports and other things. Um but all I did was entertainment and the mantra more or less was, or the message to me was, look, you can run this thing. We don't really care about it anymore. Don't lose any money. Don't screw it up. <laughs> they had license, they had licenses that they had to, you know, fulfill. So yeah. there, was, there was a certain sense of obligation there, um, at least to earn out what, what could be earned out and not, not just pay money for nothing. Yeah. Um, even though that, you know, as a company, their heart wasn't really in it. Um, but my heart was in it. So in a way it was very liberating for me personally, because all of a sudden, you know, no one was looking over my shoulder. No, like as long as I was competent, which I knew I was, I, I could do anything I wanted. So that's when we got to, Marvel Creators Collection in 1998. Mm -hmm. And wait, I'm trying to remember now which came first, Marvel Creators Collection or Silver Age? Uh, I think, well, I think they were both in the same year. I just can't remember which, which came out first. I think um, Creators Collection came out first. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm still chipping away at the autographs for that one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at that point, you know, we had already seen the success and the, and the hunger for those few sketch cards that people were able to find out of the Fleer Ultra Spider-Man set, which mm. great set of cards. And I wish I, I, I wish I could take more credit for it. I, but I can't, it wasn't my product. Um, but creator's collection was entirely mine. And so was Silver Age. And as a fan of comic books, from that period, I mean, to me, the Silver Age is 
is where it all began. Yeah. Um, and I love Stan Lee. I love Jack Kirby's art, the John Romita senior. I mean, to me, like Jack Kirby was the Babe Ruth of comic book art. John Romita senior, the Mickey Mantle, if you want to use a sports analogy. <laughs> I don't know if that I don't know if that resonates with you in the UK. I, I get uh, the references, but they, they mean know, very little to, the, <laughs> to me personally. The, uh, yeah. the, the David Beckham of <laughs> of comic art, so to speak, I guess. But yeah. Anyhow, so I, I love who those guys were. I knew a lot about the backstories. I knew about a lot of at that time, you know, what was happening to a lot of those a lot of those very iconic personalities, um, you know, who really had not been well taken care of, mm. like not by today's standards. And even, you know, even, you know, when you think about all that they did to develop, you know, these characters and, and what Stan did, at least, at least Stan lived long enough to see through, you know, some significant amount of financial success, mm. even though it didn't come at the time that a lot of his influence, you know, was exerted on, on these characters and, and their evolution. It came sort of later after, you know, I guess maybe there was a certain amount of pressure on the part of, you know, these studios that that bought Marvel um, maybe to take care of him, you mm -hmm. know, because, you know, nobody wanted to see Stan, you know, doing things that maybe weren't dignified for Stan because he needed money or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but so they ended up taking care of him, which was the right thing to do. And and I think in, in a lot of instances, they took care of the other artists, maybe not entirely, but enough. Um Anyway, I'm sort of getting off track here. But, I, you know, I, I knew that a lot of these people were still alive. So we're talking about, you know, John Buscema and Sal Buscema and um, Gene Colan. Uh, Tuska. Severin, yeah. George Tuska. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these people, they were all still alive. Yeah. And, and I thought, holy smokes, like no one has ever asked these people to do Dick anything. Ayers. Yeah, Dick Ayers was in there as well. Yeah, Dick Ayers. Mm -hmm. No one has ever asked these people to do anything with trading cards before. And, I, and like to me, I, I'm a kid in the candy store because, mm. you know, I I could see, you know, in my mind, I could see all these different kinds of projects that that could come to life, you know, playing off of the nostalgic quality of of a Marvel. And uh, and so that's you know that's where the Silver Age set you know was born that i think that still remains my all-time favorite marvel card set that i that i ever worked on just because no one had ever done anything like that before with those artists and they were so appreciative of being asked to do this and wow. you know as a collective group you know like i think they all sort of appreciated that you know it wasn't it wasn't like they were just sort of doing something for some odd you know odd project that really you know, had nothing specifically to do with them. This really was all about them. It was a celebration and of them. It was and, a celebration of them individually hmm. and, and more importantly, a celebration of them collectively. Yeah. Like we were real paying homage to to them in I thought, you know, a really cool way. So obviously we got them all to sign cards. We got them all to do sketch cards. Um 
still among my favorites. I mean, it brings me to tears. I know you sort of touched on this yourself. Like it brings me to tears when I see the ones that John Romita senior did, mm. um, even though they're not the most elaborate sketches, but. Oh, they're beautiful. You know, they're unmistakably him, you know? Yeah. And, and we did get Stan of course, to do uh, a handful of, I guess he did mostly uh, half Spidey heads. Um, trying to think that he did sketches for us a few times. So I'm, mm. you know, after all these years, I've sort of lost track a little bit of which product he did what for. Um, but in any case, you know, he was involved too. And of course he signed cards as well. And those cards, you know, to my, I guess, surprise, maybe even as iconic as Stan has always been. Um, it, it surprises me even now, like how valuable those autograph cards are. Oh, yeah. Um, so that, it, it's pretty neat. Um, anyhow, so those were the two projects that I worked on start to finish. Nobody had, nobody else really had any involvement because there wasn't anybody else to be involved. I mean, Dan had gone at that point. Steve and Ron had gone at that point. It was just sort of me coming up with, with ideas that as a collector, I thought, well, why don't we just make these kinds of sets and mm. um and then we did um and then was that shortly after that that i left to start rittenhouse so i'll i'll stop there and i'll let you ask any other questions that you may have about this well no the, uh, for, for me um albeit this is the marvel car collectors podcast i'm 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 a man who wades in many streams so i have my binder of star trek here and i have a binder up there that can Baroff gifted me shortly after we because he he went into his garage and basically <laughs> cleaned house um and so because i know that you you were looking after star trek as well as the marvel sets yeah and didn't they kind of go with you to rittenhouse well he yeah although not not right away okay um so the I'll try to make this the short version of the story, I guess. Um, so I kind of had enough at that point working for a company that really didn't know what it wanted and poor management and lots of other things that ultimately led to the company going out of business. So I was, I, I sort of saw the writing on the wall and I wanted to do my own thing anyway. Mm. Um, so it, it, without getting into all those gory details, but I remember going into the office one day and, and then there was a moment during that day where, yeah, I'm leaving. Um, and it was, I didn't go into the office that day thinking I was leaving that day, but but I did leave. And there were certain things that happened anyway. So it's not like I left with, you know, I didn't have any promises or, you know, I didn't have any licenses that were in my back gotcha. pocket. It was just, mm. it was just, okay, that's it. Yeah. I've done everything that I want to do in this company. We'll see what's next in my life. And, and I still wanted to do more in trading cards. So, you know, I reached out to the people that I had had good relationships with. Um, and that started with Star Trek. That was the, the those were the closest relationships. Um, and, and I got a license to make trading cards for Twilight Zone the classic Twilight Zone TV series and for Star Trek as well. And it took a little bit of time for me to get 
the Star Trek rights exclusively um, because it was a period of time, even after I left, that Clear Skybox still had had rights and they still somebody made product. I'm not even sure who it was. Um, it was probably somebody who didn't want to do it, um, but made some made a, one or two more Star Trek products before they just called it quits. Um, was that, and uh, that this, the Cinema 2000 set? Yeah, that was is, one of them. Is put one of the last ones with the Skybox logos on, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a Deep Space Nine set that I had started and had worked on. I forget if that was Memories from the Future. I think that might, might yeah. have been it. Mm. It came out sometime either in '99 or maybe, yeah, probably in '99. I had started the project and somebody else just picked it up and finished it. Um, but anyway, so I picked up that I picked up that license um, as well. Eventually, along with other things, I mean, we we picked up some really good business. We were the first company to make trading cards for a sci-fi show called Farscape, which at mm. the time was pretty cutting edge and kind of uh, kind of funky show that had a good following. We I love that show, um, and was instrumental in the growth of our business actually. Um, and then we picked up other other franchises like Stargate and Xena, Warrior Princess, and um, and then it was a few years later. I, I'd have to go back and look specifically at what the date was, but um, I remember talking with Jerry Bennington, who was the um, he was the Marvel guy at upper deck this is probably around two that well you could probably tell me based on when the product came out but i think the well let me back up a second so i approached jerry who was a really good guy and i said to him look you guys have the license to make marvel trading cards but you're not really doing anything with it they were i think they were just doing card games at the mm -hmm. time, that was Jerry's orientation really was with the games, not so much traditional cards. I said, look, why don't you guys sub-license us here at Rittenhouse? We'll make the product. You guys can, you know, take a piece of what, whatever we do. And it's money for nothing for you guys. You don't have to do any work. We'll do all the work and we'll share with you. And that's how that started. I think I want to say the first product that we did under that sub-license was the complete Avengers. That's right. I'm, 2006. Yeah. Okay. So there, there mm. you go. So 2006. Um, so for there, from there we had, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was about two years worth of products that we worked with them on that joint venture sub-licensing basis. Um, and it was very successful. I mean, I, I think the, uh, the complete Avengers was a cool set. I love working on that. Mm. To me, the complete Avengers was sort of like silver age series two in a way. Yeah. Um, cause, cause what, what Avengers gave us the opportunity to do was tap into, uh, you know, a huge number of characters within a more narrow theme. Like I didn't want to do, you know, I didn't want to do Silver Age 2 under Rittenhouse, which I, you know, having already done 
done Silver Age at Fleer Skybox because that would have sort of seemed like I'm repeating myself. Mm. I wanted I wanted to start going a little more deeply into some of the the sub themes within Marvel, some of the you know the character families and and the teams and and that sort of thing. So there was Fantastic Four, there's Avengers, obviously, you know Spider Man. Um, what else did we uh, What else did we tackle? Because you had Women well, Marvel, and, and, then you had Spider Man archives, Fantastic Four archives. Mm-hmm. And the Fantastic then... Four was always my favorite as a kid. Yeah, and it always mystified me why it it fell um, out of uh, you can't say out of favor, but it, it it didn't hold up over time. But I think as I look back on it, and I think I, even even then when I was you know making decisions about what card sets to make. I knew going into that Fantastic Four set that it wasn't going to be the most popular seller because Avengers was more popular at that point. There's more characters than the Avengers. Mm. Spider-Man certainly was had become more popular. Um, anyway, it was a pet project. I, I just love the Fantastic Four, and I thought they deserved their, their due, mm. even though the studio wasn't really emphasizing them. And I guess they, they've always proven to be you know, a difficult franchise to to translate to either the small screen or the big screen. Yeah. Uh, for reasons that, you know, are kind of hard to figure out because, I mean, I realized that, and maybe I'm getting off topic here, so stop me if you want to. No, carry on. No, it's a pleasure to hear, you t- <laughs> to hear you talk. Well, you know, the, the characters of the Fantastic Four individually and collectively just i i guess don't really lend themselves easily to appearing in live action format i mean the thing is a hard character to mm. to and, and they've never really been successful doing that i mean yeah. it always looks a little weird um as great as the, like that character was always a favor of mine as a kid you know it's clobbering time and all that kind of stuff yeah but, yeah yeah you know, a great comic book character, but on but in real life, always looked a little weird. Mm. Um, and I think the same thing with the other members of that that group. It's just just odd. I mean, Johnny Storm with you know being the Human Torch, and um, it's just funny though because you think about like it could have been weird that way with the Hulk and Thor and Iron Man, and like to me, Iron Man would have would have intuitively seemed like a weak character to market around and a weak character to translate into live action. And yet Iron Man became the focal point. The genius of of starting with that. It's it's just remarkable. Well, but it was born out of necessity. They didn't do it because they they wanted to. They did it because they had to. They they had given Spider-Man to Sony, and so they didn't really have ownership and control of it at the time. And some of the other characters sort of fell into that mm. that trap as well. So they had to, to work with what was available to them. And anyway, I'm getting a little bit off topic here. So um, back to the issue of, you know, we had this sub-license with Upper Deck, which, which went very, very successfully until Jerry Bennington left Upper Deck to go. I forget where he left to go to. But anyway, he left. And suddenly I didn't have anybody at Upper Deck who really understood what we had been doing together. Um, 
and I don't know that Jerry's replacement was as enthusiastic about the franchise itself, just, just in general terms. Um, I mean, you gotta have a passion for this, it, mm. it, you know, like anything in, in the collectibles world. Um, at least this has been my experience. You know, it, if you have a passion for it, if you, if you can really enjoy these characters outside of, you know, any sort of business framework, you know, like I grew up a fan of fantastic four and Avengers and, mm. and I'm sure Jerry was the same way. And that, and, you know, look, I've run into this many times over the course of my career where I, I run into people who, you know, get brought into the trading card world, may have very classic business backgrounds, um, working for consulting companies and working for classic brand management type companies, yeah. consumer products, goods and stuff like that. Um, and then they try to apply those because people don't buy these products based on need. They buy these products based on emotion and, and on what makes them happy. Yeah. And, you know, it's, a, it's just ink on paper. I mean, when you boil it down, that's, that's all that it is. But what mm -hmm. is, what appears on that in, within that ink on paper, does it make you happy? Does it, does it bring you back to your childhood? Does it make you feel something that you, felt when you were 10 years old or maybe when you're 50 years old, you know, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it's got to resonate with you in some way. And so the decisions that go into making these products and why we, you know, why we choose to do certain things or not to do, like I mentioned before, like the fantastic four set was a pet yeah. project. I just did it because I loved it. And, you know, I knew it would, it would be successful on some level. I knew it wasn't going to be the biggest selling Marvel product we ever made. But anyway, so be it. But but I had a passion for it. And mm. and because of that, I made it work. Probably, you know, most other people who would be put in that position of, OK, what are you going to do next with with Marvel? I mean, unless they they grew up collecting and, you know, had a similar mindset, maybe they skip over that one. And and maybe they don't even do sketch cards and maybe they don't do a lot of things that you know, that I thought made a lot of sense, but I, but I approach this from the standpoint of I'm a collector first and foremost. Yes. What do I, what do I want out of a product that, that I make so that other people can buy that I want to collect too. I just have the luxury of not having to, to, you know, buy the boxes and packs myself. <laughs> I just, you know, I just have them because yeah. I make them. But but it's still the same thing. I mean, you know, I think of it the same way you do, and a lot of mm. people who are perhaps watching this now that you know, you why do you buy? Because it makes you happy. Mm. That's that's all we're doing is we're make we're trying to make people happy, and hopefully we succeed at doing that. Well, all right, sorry. so back to, back to where we were we were a minute ago. So Jerry Bennington leaves Upper Deck, and then you know the the wheels on the cart sort of fell off with that relationship. I won't get into all the all the dirty details about can that. I not, can I just um, did, can I just ask one question so did uh, yeah. you mentioned earlier that um you started working on Marvel on a was it a sub license you mentioned yeah so does that does that mean that upper deck had that main license throughout that entire period only at the beginning ah okay so so the event the complete Avengers 
the Spider-Man three movie cards mm -hmm. that I, that was where Toby Maguire signed autographs for us. Oh yeah. They're hot now. Yeah. 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 Um, and then you've got Iron Man as well. The first Iron Man product I think was Rittenhouse, not under sub license. Ah, that's the first Iron Man movie card set. Yeah. In t t 2008. Uh, think so I, I mean it's easy enough if anybody has one of those cards if on the back of it it would either have an upper deck logo or it wouldn't i don't remember that card having an upper deck logo on it but keep if you talking got one hand, i go, can reach I've, i think i've got one auto from that set and it's not well, Robert you don't even have, yeah any <laughs> any card from that set would be yeah. the same it doesn't have to be an autograph card but um Oh no, it's it's Thor. I've got I've got Coulson, but it's from a Thor movie set, not from the okay. Iron Man set. Well, never not, mind. Not a, not a big deal. Um, so basically, what happened from there is that there there came a point where we needed to know whether we were moving forward on a sub licensing basis or not, and the the people at Upper Deck who were there at the time, I guess, didn't really. I don't, I don't think they knew whether they even wanted to continue with Marvel mm. in terms, at least in terms of trading cards. And at that point, the people from Marvel knew who we were because we had been making the products and been very successful with it. And it was a totally incremental revenue stream. Suddenly, you know, here they were with, before we came along upper deck making, I think a successful line of gaming cards. And then we came That's along and added to yeah. that and, and made the traditional trading cards and, and so obviously the studio was aware of it. Um, Jamie Campbell, who was still in, not with, she doesn't work for Marvel anymore, but she's still in the industry. Um, she was the licensing representative from Marvel at the time. And she came to me and she said, well, you know, this has been so successful. Why don't we just dispense with the, the sub license and we'll just work directly with you at this point. Cause it seems that upper deck just wants to do the gaming cards anyway, and it'll be cleaner and easier for everybody at this point. So that's what we did. And, and that was the beginning of, of Rittenhouse having um, the, well, our own license to make the Marvel cards. And then, you know, we, we move forward with, Obviously, many more products based on Spider-Man and the Avengers and um, lots of lots of other subcategories, the women of Marvel, Dangerous right. Divas. Dangerous Divas. Um, we did those. the we did the Bronze Age. Um, 70th anniversary. Seventy fifth anniversary. anniversary. Yeah. yeah, I mean those were great fun projects to work on. And obviously throughout that period of time, we generated an enormous volume of artwork on sketch cards. Yes. I mean, just really, uh, I, I, I think back on it sometimes, no pun intended, but I, I marvel at how much material we actually created and, and how successful that was. I mean, you know, finding new artists was always fun you know, uncovering the next, you know, hot sketch card artist, um, you know, it would, it would sort of be like once a year, it felt like there was always 
somebody who emerged. Yeah, there's always a hot new one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and you'd see cards selling on the secondary market for crazy amounts of money. And that would always be fun to see. And, you know, sometimes I'd scratch my head and be like, wow, I I didn't see that coming. Mm. Um, As nice as the art might have appeared in in the samples and and even what came in before it got released i mean because we we'd see everything and it would all be submitted for approvals and and so on but you know that's it's the one thing that i that i never took for granted in making sketch cards uh, for those projects is and even now um there's no accounting for for what people will find interesting and compelling and want to want to collect you know, what I think looks like a great sketch card, somebody else might think, eh, okay, it's, it's all right. And then vice versa, I might think, yeah, it's okay. And then, you know, it's just, it's it's such a weird dynamic, but it, it comes back again, excuse me, to the notion that, you know, these products, exists to make people happy it it resonates with people on an emotional basis Mm. and and artistically certainly you know it's as it's as true with sketch cards as it is with i guess artwork in in general i mean you know you want to put a painting on the wall in your living room i mean does it speak to you does it you know does it make you happy it doesn't have to be valuable for it to make you happy it doesn't but it can i mean Mm -hmm. But you just you never know. There's no there's no objective um, way of you know quantifying what's good, what's not good, what's you know mediocre or, or whatever. The only thing I will say though about this is that we always took it seriously, and we still do, even though we're not making Marvel cards and haven't for a while. Um, we take it very seriously what does go on a sketch card because you know we we don't want we don't want something that looks like it was drawn by a 3 year old um or just somebody who isn't competent mm. and I, i'm i'm not pointing fingers at anybody but i i do see cards at times that appear in some products and i wonder like who approved that? Who, who thought that was a good idea? Um, you know, stick figure, like, you know, very, I don't know. It, it, look, it's all subjective. I realize that I, I, I've said it before. And I'll, I guess I'll keep saying it is, it's just very subjective, but to me, there are some minimally, um, it's a minimal criteria. At yeah. least there's for, a standard. What there's, is, a, there's at least what, a standard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, it's not about quantity to me. It's about quality. Mm. Even though I think we achieved both at the height of what we were doing oh with Marvel, we, yeah. you know, we could make 10,000 boxes, every one of them having a sketch card. And, you know, I think you could put all 10,000 of those sketch cards in front of a panel of, you know, however many people, you know, in front of 10 people, let's say, and nine thousand nine hundred and ninety of those cards are going to be looked upon as as being um you know product worthy by all 10 of them and then maybe there's a you know that small number of cards where it's like yeah maybe maybe that one slipped by 
um, it, it might happen. But but by and large, I, I think we always did a very good job and took a lot of pride. And not just me, it's the team that works for me, because I, I certainly wasn't the guy doing all of that legwork. Um, but our team, I think, did a really good job of keeping quality control and, you know, at a, at a very high level. And certainly by comparison to, you know, some of the other products that have been made since. Mm. Is, uh, Warren actually did go into that. He was mentioning that he was, he was kind, he kind of, he was kind of on point for a period there of actually kind of helping to nurture some of the talent coming up as well and coming into the cards and, you know, just being that art director for for the sketch card artists and you know the the, the stuff that was coming into your product i mean the, the amount yeah. of work that must have entailed is is mind-boggling with, with the volume of, of sketch cards and artists that you had on some of the sets yeah yeah but look it was a priority to us mm -hmm. and you know we we needed to do it we had yeah. to do it you know it it, it wasn't like we weren't a sports card company that was just sort of you know, making this other thing along the way. And, you know, if it came out good, great. And if it didn't, well, who cares? Um, no, mm -hmm. for us, it was always, this is what we do. This is what we want to be remembered for. And we always took that very seriously. Warren was always, and always has been, uh, you know, great to work with. Certainly one of the one of the best artists that we ever worked with and have always had a good relationship with him going back to those products at clear skybox I, that's how we first met um uh, the one interesting thing though since you mentioned this about the artists is that uh, you know i'm i'm remembering things as as we're talking through here so it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of fun to have this stream of consciousness no i love it i love it it's exactly um, what we do on this on this show so yeah so one of the things that was that was very cool to see and 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 kind of encourage over the years is the kind of the competitive nature of the artists. Mm. You know, they would they would often see each other's work. That a lot of times the artists, because it's a tight community. I mean, a lot of these people were connected to each other, and they would see what they're yeah. doing for us before we would see it, and. You know, Warren might see something that someone else was doing, and although I don't, I don't think Warren was was so much guilty of this as maybe some other artists being just competitive. Like, wow, look at what that guy's doing. I'm gonna do something maybe to try to top that, and that's when we started getting into some of the really cool stuff that would mm. show up. Like we get we I can't honestly I can't think of all the names off the top of my head, but. I know there would be sketch cards that would that would come in, like the FedEx would come in, we'd open the box and it would be like, oh my God, there's like 30 fully oil painted. Jack Red used to do like, oil painted uh, I mean, cards. These aren't sketch cards anymore. Mm. These these are like fully rendered. Charles oil Hall. Yeah. Just yeah, it just happens to be mm. in this, you know, two and a half by three and a half inch yeah. format. You know. They they wanted to to one up each other in in a nice way. I mean, it wasn't like they were. No one was trying to make anybody feel bad or look bad. It was just that, you know, this is their chance to do something really cool. For a lot mm -hmm. of these artists, this this was maybe their 
their first and sometimes only opportunity to work on a an officially sanctioned, licensed Marvel project. Um, it's a resume builder in some respects. Yeah, some of these artists went on to go working for for Marvel as comic yeah. book artists and yeah. and and even to work, you know, in other ways for the studio. You know, it could be making storyboards for movies or you know what have you. I mean that that was always the sad part for us. Um, I can think of a couple of people where that happened, where they got so good working through the medium of trading cards and they were noticed by people at the studio that they, <laughs> that they got assigned other work that, you know, became more important to their livelihood and they couldn't, they couldn't dedicate the time just for that reason. But I always took that as kind of a, you know, as a badge of honor too. I mean, yeah. for us, for us to have, you know, given some of these people a platform to succeed. I mean, it's like watching your own kids life and to and to go on to bigger and better things. Not that there's anything bigger and better than trading cards, mind you, but um, <laughs> bit debatable. But in any case, um, it, it was always fun, you know, to to even though it was disappointing when someone said they couldn't work for us anymore. Well, why can't you work for us? Well, I'm working now for for Marvel Studios to or for the comic book division. I'm actually going to be doing inks on you know, uh, She-Hulk or something. It, it's like, well, yeah. okay. I can't, I can't be upset about that. Yeah. Um, anyway. So again, I'm sort of veering off topic a little no, bit. No, no, this is, this is wonderful. Um, can you, uh, I, I want to go back into some of the things that I think made your, your tenure on Marvel cards really special, but because we've mm -hmm. kind of gone to the point where you've kind of talked through the history of it. Can you tell us about, marvel kind of what happened to when marvel left your tenure and then i want to go back in some of the fun stuff i mean i'm not sure what you can tell us about that but but when did you kind I, of I, get a wind of it well i mean the timeline is fairly obvious i think to you know just based on the products mm. when they were released mm. so mm -hmm. you know we had what was it in 2015? Was that the last year? I think um, so. Let's have a look. So I think we had an Avengers set that came out. Avengers Silver year. Age. That was the last comic set I think we did. And, and we Agents did Age of Shield. Shield Series 2. That's it. Season, season 2, I think that was the last set period mm. um no it just it just came to an end you know th this it was a little bittersweet i guess because obviously um you know i i felt like i was instrumental in the success of the marvel trading cards you know for a long time nobody cared and no you know there, there weren't companies that were invested at all in making Marvel trading cards. I mean, you had comic images back in the, I guess the late eighties, early nineties, yeah. and they fell by the wayside because they weren't really doing anything that was, that was that clever or creative. They were just making product that was sort of mass produced kind of, you know, kind of bland, 
in a yeah. way. I mean, yeah. at the time, that's what people were doing. So I'm not, I mean, I, I can't fault them exactly for for the kinds of products that they made. That's where the industry was at the time. Yeah. Um, it really wasn't until, you know, we got into the 90s, later into the 90s, that, you know, we were sort of pushing each other to, uh, to be more creative and inventive. And Bill Jemis was the guy who, you know, when he came to FLIR and started that division, um, and, you know, with Marvel Masterpieces was Bill, um, and Marvel Metal, and some of these, some of these other, you know, iconic brands that still have survived to this day. Yeah. I think Upper Deck is still making cards that are built off of those brands. Yeah. That that's Bill Jemis. Um, I don't know how many people would know that, but um, but Bill was the guy. And you know, anyway, I I felt like the the challenge. Well, that's not the right word. Um, I think you know Marvel had been bought by Disney at that point. Um, towards the end of our our run with the Marvel trading cards, there was an awful lot of turnover within the organization. The people that we had worked with for years were gone. The new people who would come in, you know, I, I would say that there really wasn't a deep knowledge of the, or, or any knowledge really of the history of, of the category of Marvel trading cards. Um, you know, to, I, I think, it was it was really just a function of corporate turnover and you know there was nobody there at that time who knew you know what we had done um to help build this up and make it into something really substantial and then at the same time we became kind of guilty of or no guilty is the wrong word um victims of our own success in a way because we had we had made this marvel trading card franchise as successful as, as it was i mean next to star wars which you know is a you know on its own a level whole different uh, ball game. yeah 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 They're totally different leave star wars out of it i mean i think the marvel card line was arguably the most prolific successful best-selling card line in the entertainment um segment of this market mm. and we had we were really responsible for that. I mean, again, you go back to when we first approached Upper Deck about the sub-license. What were they doing with it? Nothing. You know, I was lucky enough to have had a sympathetic, like-minded, you know, colleague in Jerry Bennington who who could see the merits of what, what we wanted to do, even though he was doing so much and it was so successful what they were doing with the card games. They just didn't it didn't pay for them at that time to jump into what we wanted to jump into. Mm. Now, again, by comparison, Upper Deck, you know, probably at that point in time had hundreds of employees. I don't know what they have today, but nowhere near what it is, what it was back then. You know, we were a company of three or four employees, you know, totally dedicated to what we were doing, Star Trek, Marvel, you know, Stargate, other James franchises, Bond. James Bond, you know, we were doing deep dives into, into this material in a way that we felt really made the diehard fans and collectors of, of those cards happy. 
um, and wanted and you know encouraging them and giving them motivation for buying more. So at the end, Upper Deck, under a new management, this is like two or three generations past when we were involved with them, um, they saw an opportunity to do what we were doing. And they ended up with a license to make those cards too. So suddenly, this is, I think, fairly unprecedented um, on the entertainment side of this business, where you had two companies making product for the same entertainment franchise. Yeah. I mean, in sports, it had been done many, many times for many years, but, but the sports card market was much bigger. Um, so for a while, you know, there was Upper Deck and Rittenhouse both making entertainment or rather marvel cards and at one point i guess you know whoever was in charge uh at the studio level just decided you know we're just going to go with one company uh, and the the reason for that was never fully explained because even at the end we weren't quite doing the same things that they were doing i i thought we were mutually coexisting in a in a reasonably good way there was enough going on like they had some movies and we were doing some TV shows mm -hmm. that they didn't seem to want to do. And we were doing some comic products that they weren't doing and vice versa. So, I mean, there was a little bit of crossover, maybe a little bit of, of conflict there in terms of, you know, there being maybe at times product in the marketplace that was more than maybe we would have, we would have liked. I would just wait until February to put our comic card set out or what have you. And, but again, most of it was driven by the movies and TV shows, not so much the comic book material at that point. Um, so their decision to go with one company didn't really make sense to me at the time. Um, and you know, nothing I could do about it. Mm. I just had to, had to live with that and which is fine. I mean, look, it's their right and their, their choice to do that. Um, where I thought it didn't make sense from a business standpoint is that there was so many different iterations within the Marvel universe. Like if Upper Deck was suddenly all hot to trot to make trading cards for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and gosh, what were the other shows back then? There was the one with... Uh, uh, oh, Agent Carter. Agent Carter. Um, uh, then all the Netflix ones, the Punisher. Then the Netflix shows. Yeah. And, I mean, they did some of those eventually, but they didn't really do it in a in a way that was, to, from where I sit, it, it didn't seem like it was a a full throated effort, <laughs> if you will. Um, More of an obligation, and, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. And some, and even what they did do, often, you know, it, it would come out after the show was canceled, or it, yeah, a lot of it just didn't quite. It, from a business standpoint, it didn't quite make sense to me, but okay, look, I, I accomplished what I set out to accomplish, you know, earlier on. And, and that was fine. Um, you know, my, my only uh, concern in this industry, and it, it has nothing to do with any one franchise in particular. It's just, it's a general feeling that I have about this industry. I go back to what I said Previously, we're in this business to make people happy. 
there there is also along along those lines the people that we do make happy um including myself i i say this with love i mean we all have kind of this uh, a little bit of this obsessive compulsive nature to wanting to collect more stuff and where i get upset is when there are products that are made that are sort of inferior and not not made with that sensibility of okay what what is the best thing that that you could do with with this tv show or with this movie or with this comic franchise or you know what is it that you could do and i and i always felt like and to this day i still feel like we're always putting forward our best effort that way yeah i mean we're not 100% successful i mean you know there's there's no one formula to it and you know there might be somebody else who who might have done something that we've done differently and maybe would be better but i think by and large we're we're doing a pretty good job with all with star trek and um you know now we're doing doctor who which you know like i i look back and i see some of the products that were made for doctor who and i'm like really that's the best they could have done you and all right. Well, look, it's that's the way it goes. I mean, this isn't a perfect world. It's not a perfect yeah, industry. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm not saying that anybody did anything with with any ill intent. It's just some of it may just be for lack of being passionate or having, you know, a full appreciation for why it is that people collect some of these things. Mm, mm. Um Anyway, I, I don't want to. I don't want to turn this into something nope. that seems no, a little no. too negative. It's just, or that you know, all of what we do, you know, doesn't stink, so to speak. But no. Well, um, listen. I mean, what one thing I've I've just jotted this down. Um, you you honor the IP that you're working with. That's what I've always respected about Rittenhouse, and you can see the passion in what you've done. Um, I mean, I, you know, I've got some. A personal touch points i'll come on to in a moment um but okay. one thing i love also is that you you kind of honor the form of trading cards so and St- and ken baroff mentioned this actually the um the nine up the nine card page in the binder and i i love that you guys have respected that over the years in you know where possible Thank you. um nothing frustrates me more as someone who is starting to move out of set building and more, you know, more curated <laughs> collecting, uh, for want of a better word. But nothing frustrates me more than a 10-card subset. Um, yeah, no, I, I I can appreciate that. You know, we try to do things in multiples of three, six, and nine in particular. Um, sometimes you run into a situation where, you know, there is a 10th character. Yeah, or there's, there's or there's eleven characters or thirteen or you know some <laughs> oddball number and okay as important as the as the the rule of nine as we sometimes refer to it as important as the rule of nine is you know you're not going to leave out an important character yeah. just just well, for the sake of that but that's what I mean that's what I mean about honoring the IP because that's yeah. a circumstance where the where the property the integrity of the property is is more important than than the nine card uh, beauty uh, that yeah. comes out. Um, I've always loved. Um, just 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 quickly want to touch on some of the things I love about Rittenhouse is the the wrappers. You've always had this thing with the wrappers, whereby people could send them in 
for the mm-hmm. points and and you build them up. Do you still do that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So c- quite often, the, the people then can save up those points and then get a, get a redemption card. So sometimes that redemption card pushes you over the nine cards. <laughs> well, that's that's true. Okay, so there's there's where you have a conundrum. Yeah. Um, so you get nine cards that come out of the packs, and those conveniently go into your album, and mm-hmm. you know we're all we're all happy for that. Um, but at the same time, we want to give stuff away, of course. and we want to add that. That's the whole point of the rewards program is to is to give people something more to add to their collections. That I mean, quite honestly, it is easy for us to produce. Doesn't cost a lot for us to mm. produce most in most instances. The point values sometimes reflect that, but um, but what's better than getting something basically for free? And yeah. and so would it would it make you happier if we put eight cards in the packs and had that ninth card as a rewards card? Good point. We'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> There's no one answer to that. There's that, no, you know, no one you, answer. You have, no, no, no. You have 50 people, you're going to get, you know. Yeah, you are going to get different answers for that. Because people, because not everyone, I mean, I, I mean, you you always and still put out binders, and they quite often have a single nine-card um, nine card page in there with a promo card or something, right. you know, something different, uh, which, which well, Let I'm, me just interrupt you just for a stuff. second there. Mm. I, I just want to make a point about that. So this is where I, I will sort of, pat myself and ourselves on the back a little bit because for the most part through the years, there weren't a lot of binders being made to support these products. You know, it's like you put the boxes out, you put the cards out, you know, and then people were sort of left to their own devices to figure out how to store them. Mm-hmm. And I always felt very passionately that, you know, and, and truth is whether anyone wants to believe this or not, we generally don't make anything on binders. We don't, I mean, we, we, our goal is to break even on binders and we don't always even do that, but I feel like it's, it's a necessary um, ancillary part of Mm. the collecting, uh, the making of these cards and the collecting of these cards that needs, that needs to be a part of the whole process. So, you know, so we've, faithfully been doing that there's been a very few instances where we didn't make binders and that was usually for something that was like a collector set something very small um but yeah i just i think that's really important and and it always sort of made me you know shrug like why why couldn't some of these other companies make binders i mean it's Mm. it's not difficult it's a constant frustration for me with the with the modern products, <laughs> and I've said I've said that to to Upper Deck yeah. on a number of occasions. Um, yeah. anyway. it, it, it does frustrate me. Go, but go the, one of the other one of the other things. Uh, so let's talk let's talk about the, the the touchstones of of collecting that I love. So you got the binders, promo yeah. cards. You you guys <laughs> always do do right by collectors and promo cards. I especially love the fact that people can send in to you uh, for promo cards. I think that's sure. That's a wonderful thing. I miss the sell sheets. I'll be honest with you. I used to love the sell sheets. Um, how, how come they kind of went went by the wayside? Was that a, a distribution marketing kind of 
just stopped happening for some reason or yeah no i i appreciate what you're saying about that um that was a tough choice that we made years ago um they do look beautiful and mm -hmm. i know a lot of people like to to add them to their binders um part of the problem was the well several things really one was costs they're expensive to produce and a lot of times we would find ourselves printing something we'd have, we'd have to print it so far in advance and we wouldn't necessarily have all of the details of a product worked out and it would frustrate me to no end to have mm -hmm. just printed a cell sheet glossy full color images of cards and then realize that oh wait a minute we just got robert downey jr to sign cards or we just got you know hugh jackman or you know whatever it might be. and he's mm. not on the cell sheet oh. so now the cell sheet's out of date and you know th that would be very frustrating to me um i i never liked when that happened and it would happen it, it seemed to happen more and more that that as time went by, we would we would have more and more key details, um, key selling points of these products um, becoming finalized too late in the process. Mm -hmm. And by the again, by the time we get the sell sheet out, it'd be out of date. So mm -hmm. that that was part of it. The cost was a big part of it. Um, and quite honestly, I, I found that a lot of people didn't use them for what they were originally intended for. That was another thing as well. Uh, and that's true for promo cards too. We used to send out, you know, bulk quantities of promo cards to our distributors and dealers. And then the next thing I know, I'd be seeing, you know, stack of 25, you know, Spider-Man promos or, or Star Trek promos on eBay, you know, for five bucks or whatever, whatever it might be. And, and so they weren't being disseminated to, to potential customers. Mm -hmm. The intention of a promo card was to promote the product so that we could generate some awareness and generate yeah. more sales. And, and eventually it just stopped being what it stopped. The, the intention stopped being what it was meant to do. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, okay, do I want to spend? I don't know, just picking a just picking a number off the top of my head. This is yeah. real, but let's just say uh, instead of spending ten thousand dollars on promo cards, bulk promo cards, and sell sheets, do I want to just put that money into the product and make and make a better product? Yeah, because you know, if I can do that, that'll that'll live on much longer than than what the short-term benefit might mm, be mm. for those things, even though I realize people do save them and, and they, they stay in their albums. But, um, you know, if I can make the product itself better, that was always my number one. Yeah. My number yeah, yeah. one goal. And yeah. we still do the promos. Um, we just don't make as many of them as we used mm. to um, for the reasons I partly just described. Um, so there yeah. you go. Okay, um, and uh, one of the other things there's there's a frequent discussion backwards and forwards um, that pops up in the group about the gold seals on the incentive. 
to to free cards from those gold seals and their their top loaders, or to leave them in there. I'm firmly of the leaving them sealed um, uh, camp, uh, but I think it's mainly uh, mainly the sketch card fellas like to release them from their, their gold seals. But um, I, I've always I've always found it interesting um, that that that's there. Do do you? Um, Keep yours in the gold seals. Yes. Yes. I think the way that that we issue them is the way they should always remain. Now, having said that, I'll go back to what I what I've said a few times in this discussion that what we do is to make people happy. Of course. If it makes you happy to take the card out of that that holder and undo the gold seal and put it in your nine pocket page or put it in some other storage receptacle, whatever it might be your choice, <laughs> um, you know, have at it. That That's fine. Yeah. Here's, here's though where I find the modern age of collecting gets in the way of that. So here's the example, and I'm sure you'll understand this right away. Mm-hmm. So I'll have somebody um, email me that says, I took the card out of my holder. I broke the gold seal, took the card out of my holder. I submitted it to PSA and mm-hmm. it came back. You know, you pick the number, whatever the number is. Six. Well, first of all, we're not in the business of making cards for PSA to grade them. If people want to do that, I understand and respect mm-hmm. it. I, I personally collect a lot of, it doesn't have to be PSA. It could be other companies too, Beckett or SGC or whoever. Um, I, I personally, as a, as a collector slash investor in, in vintage cards, I mean, if I'm going to spend, you know, a good amount of money on, on a high end card, you know, I, I like it to be graded and I have the certainty of it. I, I have a hard time spending, you know, meaningful amount of money on a card that that isn't graded, that, you know, maybe has been trimmed or maybe yeah. something funny has gone on yeah. with it. I just like the comfort of knowing that, you know, I've got a PSA 5 of, you know, 1940 Superman gum card or whatever. Um, but But, you know, what can happen to a card once it's taken out of, even in the process of taking it out of the holder, you know, a card could be a 10 in the holder. PSA won't grade it in the holder. I don't think maybe eventually they might. I don't, I don't know if that's ever been tested to be honest with you. No, like, I don't, because, I don't remember because the card in, a, hmm. in its true natural state is in that holder with our seal. So you'd think that maybe even though, you know, they'd have to put it in a larger than normal holder in order to accommodate that. But anyway, I don't think that's ever happened to my knowledge. So let's no, leave that aside. Yeah, I haven't seen but, it. But, you know, you could you could take the card out of the holder. It could be a 10 before it comes out of the holder. You could damage the card just pulling it out of the pulling it out of the sleeve. Mm-hmm. Let alone what happens, you know, now you're going to put it into another sleeve and then mail it. And off to someone the else is going to handle it. Yeah. You know, like mm. you don't know. I, and 
look, I'll take responsibility for a lot of things, but I can't take responsibility for that because it's not the, it's not the, the way we intended the card to be, to be handled. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know what to tell people about that. To be yeah. honest with you, I, well, I feel I feel bad when when people send their cards in for grading and they don't get the grade they want. But yeah, we we always say to people we have it all the time in the in the group on Facebook when people say, "Oh, um, you know, I've I've got these cards. I sent them in. I didn't get the grades I expected." And you know, I I'm firmly and I, I think a lot of people agree with me on this is that uh, you know a card isn't guaranteed to be PSA ten out of the pack. Because, you know, it's gone no. through a process, you know, it's a physical product, you know, the conditions of manufacture may vary slightly each time, you know, a production happens, I'm guessing. Um, but I think there's certainly since COVID with the market and what it's done and the influx of new people um, across all spectrums, but Marvel, not sure how much you're aware of the kind of modern what's going on with Marvel, but it's 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 had a spike and then a crash. Um, yeah. And there was this, there's this odd expectation now where people w expect because the, because the prices of the boxes are significantly higher there's an expectation that they're going to recoup on what they pull from the box so straight away that disappoints a lot of people because their expectations are off with with the potential reality of what might happen but then when they open it they expect it to be of a certain quality and standard that they can then go and grade it and maybe improve their chances of recouping so there's there's a lot of that now and some collectors like to do that and you know i'm not i'm not i'm not dissing them at all um but it's not yeah. it's not kind of my um approach to things so i you know i can i can kind of understand it but i just i do think it interesting that people message you now about some of that stuff but i guess you still issue the gold sealed stuff don't you so um yeah that's interesting. Um, I, I was going back to one of the things, um, one of the sets of yours that I'm, I've been chipping away at from the autos and uh, point of view is the Chronicles of Riddick um, set that you put out in, when was that? 2007, 2008, I want to say. Um, is that right? Somewhere around then. And I've have been having yeah. a, a, a bugger of a time finding the two gold seal um incentives for that i mean keith david and claudia black but both on pitch black um stock actually in the seal i've seen about three pop up in the last two years and there's not many pop up at all um that have been busted out of their gold seal but of course i don't want that i want it in the seal but it goes back to that whole thing of the sell sheet because i guess it goes the other way because on that sell sheet you had um costume relics but in the end, I believe only one came out, which was Vin Diesel's T-shirt. I'll take so, your word for it. I'll be honest with you. I don't remember all the dirty details of that product. No, 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 no. I, 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 I did, I did I love making it. I, mm. I, I will say that I, that I loved making that set of cards, especially the pitch black mm. um, subset or bonus yeah. set, depending on how you want to refer to it. Um, it's one of my favorite movies I love it. And I, I that, love that, it. that original, I mean, the Chronicles of Riddick, you know, you could argue good, bad, otherwise. Um, fun to see the character live on, if nothing else. But the original movie, boy, what a good movie that was. Yeah. Just yeah. 
the original movie is astonishing. Horror, terror, sci-fi. It had a lot of good stuff going on. Yeah, but it's the signers that you got on that. I mean, not only is I think it's Vin Diesel's only auto today on a card. I think so, yeah. Um, And I'm pretty sure. And you also hold the honor of having Robert Downey Jr.'s only Marvel IP um, auto on a card. Um, But uh, you had Tandiwi Newton. You had Judi Dench, Carl Urban. I mean that's quite. That's, I mean, not to mention that's a bonkers set of actors to be in one film together, which indicates how crazy a swing uh, Chronicles of Riddick was. But I, I just love the fact that you've got such a breadth of, of talent on card, um, and that's what I've always. I think I've always personally kind of respected that you do that um, with with the sets that you bring out. Um, when I was looking online for this i found a post that you did and you won't remember you may remember this post it's from the 7th of october it's from the 7th october 2015 and granted you have been to sleep since then but basically it was you on your facebook page steve charandoff here i'm particularly psyched about the fred dryer autograph card now i found that when i was googling and i immediately i was like yes that exists and I love your enthusiasm for it because I used to love Hunter when I when I was when I was younger, and I hadn't realised that he had that backstory of being an NFL star as well. So, mm-hmm. what what set was it that you had a Fred Dry autograph card in? That was Agents of Shield. Was it Agents of Shield? Yeah. I need to find this autograph card. So straight away, I'm heading to eBay because I didn't I didn't realize because it doesn't actually say in the post what <laughs> I mean, it mentions Marvel TV mythology. So I guess I could have figured it out. Um, but um, but no, hats off to you for that for that deep cut. Um, if he was a good guy to work with, too, I, I don't always get to speak directly to the to the talent, mm, mm. Um, but he was a good dude. You've, well, I found some stories. Um, I found an article on uh, Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek website, where I think you were promoting Discovery Season 2, where you talked some, somewhat passionately about your, your time on Star Trek and having, you know, obviously engaged with some of the talent there. Um, and you dropped, um, you dropped Leonard Nimoy's name um, as well. How much involvement did you kind of have with i mean obviously you you reached out to them all for on card autographs and i believe did i read you you, you've captured every major guest star in star trek on an autograph card from the original series did i did i read that from the original series um there are still a couple of people that we have never been able to find (sighs) um diana ewing i think is sort of the the biggest of those um, not that she had a, you know, huge career outside of Mm. playing that one role on Star Trek, but in terms of her being a guest star on Star Trek and the role that she had in the show, she was pretty significant and we've never been able to find her. Um, Lots of leads that have come up dry, but uh, I think she may just be one of those rare individuals who, you know, had her moment in Hollywood, left the industry and just didn't want to be part mm-hmm. of it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that even if we have at some point inadvertently found her, 
we've been turned away under the pretense that it's not her or this isn't the right address or, or what have you. I, you know, we've tried so many different times. I find it hard to believe that we didn't come across the real Diana Ewing at some point, but that, it, you know, look, you're not going to get everybody all the time. Um, but we keep trying. You never know. There might, you know, we, we've gone many times, many with lots of projects. I mean, Pierce Brosnan with James Bond was one of those people who, you know, took us like 10 years before he said yes to us. Um, Halle Berry took an awfully long time as well. Gosh, there's a handful of people like that. We just got actually for Game of Thrones. Um, while we're on this topic, we just got Charon Hines, who played Mance Raider. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. On, on Game of Thrones. Um, for the longest time, it was like, nah, he's not, he's too busy. You know, look, the guy's an actor and he's, you know, very accomplished actor mm, and very mm. busy actor. So I can understand, you know, why some people, you know, might not want to be distracted by signing trading cards it may mm. not it may not mean anything to them mm. um most most of the actors though i think are happy to participate and they they have a an appreciation and a in a sense of um fondness or affinity if you will for the fans of the the franchises the, that they work on or the, just the the whatever the work is that they're mm. that they're doing it's a tv show or a movie what have you mm. that mm. you know there are these fans out there who are very passionate and they want to give something back i mean i think that was true for you know true for daniel craig da true for i think in the end for pierce brosnan certainly uh, i think robert downey jr when he signed iron man cards for us i mean that was the message that came through to me is you know look their fans out there they we want to respect them that you know these are franchises that have fans you know there's a lot of things that that these actors work on these productions that actors work on where they don't have you know fans in the in the sense of what we think of as fans where mm. they, you know the, the conventions and they'll they'll collect merchandise and you know a lot of a lot of times it, you know there isn't that dynamic in place so mm -hmm. they don't they don't even get asked because mm -hmm. it's not a thing it's not part of you know it's not it's not part of what the franchise is about but when you get into science fiction and fantasy and comics you know then there is that dynamic so anyway um I sort of lost track of no that's okay i was <laughs> to be honest with you i was i was having a moment of self-indulgence could you mind if i very quickly personally thank you for free cards in my collection okay sure because this this means an awful lot to me so i have two movies are you familiar with desert island discs you know the concept of being stuck on a desert island and you've got oh. you've got so many records you can really yeah you know, i think you can have like 10 records uh, the, the complete works of William Shakespeare, the Bible, and one other book. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a British radio thing. It's been going for years. Anyway, okay. If I was on a desert island and I could only have two movies, one of them would be Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Um, and that okay. was possibly one of the. I saw that when I was. I'm going to date myself now. I saw that when I was ten. Um, just after no, I think I was nine. It was just after my father died. And I was allowed to go on a, it was a school trip and it was an evening thing. And the nearest cinema was 12 miles away and we didn't have a car because my mum didn't drive. So 
for the longest time, I couldn't go and see a film without missing the end of it. So Return of the Jedi, I left the cinema because the last bus home to the town where I lived left at half past five and the matinee showing didn't get out to a court bus. So for, for like three years, I never saw the last 15 minutes of Return of the Jedi until, until the video came out, until the VHS came out. Um, I did actually end up reading it in a comic book. But um, for that reason, I was two years ago, I managed to acquire this card. Ah, uh, yeah. I had a feeling that's what was coming. The Ricardo Montalban. Now, I've got other cards in here from this movie. Um, uh, one's yep. from Cinema 2000, which is uh, the, the, the actor who played Terrell. But this card in particular, um, mm -hmm. this is the one of the ones I talk about, um, the, that just feeling of joy um, mm -hmm. and just having yep. it. Um, I mean, he must have been quite elderly when he signed it, I'm guessing. Um but that yeah. was from your first Star Trek movies um, set, which I think was 2007, 2008. Um, Sounds about right, yeah. Um, so that, yeah, that was astonishing. And what I, did, what I do is I collect all of that format autograph from that Star Trek movies, because I know you carried them on through the sets, but I put them in the binder for the first one. Nice. I think I'm about 20 off having all of them. I've been really motoring the past few years, and there's, okay. <laughs> believe me, that's a that's a that's a valuable binder. The other the other movie is Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig movie. Um, partly because I went to the premiere of it in Leicester Square in London, um, and partly because it's a bloody good film. Yeah, uh, about certainly one of the best. About a month ago, I finally, and this took a long time, I finally found one of these. Yeah. Mads Michelson. Mm-hmm. On Card Auto. I believe there were two different versions of that um, in two products that you put out in the noughties. Um, but that's yeah. one of them. And then the final card, I mean, I'm, I'm spoilt for choice here. There's... There's several relic cards from that movie that just make my hair stand on end. I'm still to find the playing card, although there are two on eBay at the moment, but I don't have the funds at the moment. But last year I managed to acquire the poker chip. Ah, oh, nice. Now, with these, begs the question, how – that's a remarkably inventive thing to do, and I imagine – in my uneducated knowing about the intricacies of production, possibly quite a difficult thing to make make a reality within a trading card format. How do you guys come up a come up with these ideas and b you know what's the trickiest one you've had to pull off that you've been like pr most proud of? I guess. Um, well, production wise, not that difficult. Um... You know, when the studio gives us those uh, those poker chips, mm. you know, like we told them what we were going to do with them and they were cool with that. <laughs> um, and I guess we could have kept them intact, but then, of course, you have half as many cards. Mm. <laughs> so cutting them up allows for more people to to collect and we didn't have that many of them to begin with so mm -hmm. and i never like to make things too scarce um but um you know it's it's all part of the process of 
you know, being creative with, with these projects. Um, sometimes it's just driven by what's available to us. Mm -hmm. I mean, in that instance, you know, Eon Productions came to us and said, you know, would you like poker chips? You know, my inclination, I, I say this all the time, you know, when the studio asks if you want something, you don't say no. You, mm. just, you take it and you do what what you can with it. You make it work. Because, um, I mean, you don't want to say it. You don't ever want to say no because you, you, you always want them to keep feeling, keep them feeling like they're always doing good things for you. And you want them to keep coming back, offering you more things. So if yeah. you just keep saying yes, then, you know, it's a, it's always just more positive to be positive. Um yes the risk of re being redundant there um <laughs> anyhow so you know they gave us those they could have given us something else um but they gave us poker chips and so we turned those into trading cards if um if we didn't have poker chips we would have done something you know well we, we would have gone a different direction with you had you know, what we did have. you had vespalin's business cards got one of those you had the the, the table felt from the uh from the casino, yeah. uh, the the playing cards, the aforementioned playing cards. Uh -huh. I've got some Quantum of Solace relics in there that are like this thick. They're they're, they're shattered windscreens from jeeps that are used. In yeah, well, I'll tell you a funny. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, and I'm gonna. I, unfortunately, I'm gonna have to to shove off soon. No, but no, I'll, that's fine. That's but, fine. But I only have one more question this, for you. I'll, I'll tell the story because <laughs> I I think. It's a good one. Um, so, you know, like I mentioned, the studio asked us if we want things. And one day, the our, the person who handles this material from uh, Eon Productions that makes the James Bond films called me up and said, hey, we've got some windshields from the, uh, the Aston Martins. And because there's more than one you know, of everything in these yeah, films yeah. Um, and the police vehicles. And we've, so we've got, we've got these windshields and we know you like to do weird things with the cards. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like these? Um, so what's my response going to be? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And then I'll figure out what to do with them. Okay. But, you know, so she started telling me about these windshields. They're big and, you know, they're full size. It's not just like a few, you know, it's not like just a piece. So um, she's starting to tell me about the weight and how to ship them and how expensive that's going to be because they're coming from the UK to the United States where we are. And I said, you know what? Don't send them to my office. Send them to this factory out in Wisconsin where we get the cards made. Um, and, and they'll they'll cut these into smaller pieces and then we'll mount them into cards. And all right. So she does that. And so anyway, the, uh, the shipment goes out, big, huge crate shows up at the factory in Wisconsin. And the guy who handles our business there calls us up and he is beside himself. He doesn't know how to tell us this. He's like, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I got to break this news to you. But these windshields, they're all shattered. They're they're a mess. They're <laughs> you know they they got holes in them. They've got they look like bullet holes, and and they're and you know that you know how 
windshield glass, yeah. spider yeah, yeah. fractures. You know, it's all that. And and I, you know, we just sort of laughed. I said, no, that's exactly the way they're supposed to be. That you got exactly what we wanted and what you should have received. So don't, you know, don't sweat it. The guy was was so worried that we oh. were going to be distraught over having spent <laughs> literally, I think, thousands of dollars to ship this stuff overseas. And it, was, it ended up being exactly what we wanted. And you see the cards mm. And, mm. and what they are. Oh, and, that's you know, if, you're lucky, if you're lucky enough to find one that's got a bullet hole in it, that's obviously one of the one of the more cool cards to yeah, I bet. To I find. Bet. I'll have to closely investigate mine. Right, one more question, and then and yeah. then I'll, I'll let you go. This is the big one, so there might not be an answer for it. If okay, you I'll got, if you if you could do a Marvel set next year, mm. what would you like to do, and what would you like to do that you hadn't done before? <sighs> well. I'll preface this by saying that I really tend not to dwell on the things that are out of my control and that, you know, I, I, I really don't sit around too often thinking, well, geez, if I could just have my a chance to do one thing, you know, yeah, with this, yeah, I appreciate that. That's yeah. what I would do. But, mm. um, wow. What would I do? Um, you know, we got the Robert Downey card signed. And I still think, you know, like Robert Downey, he's the centerpiece of the Marvel Cinematic Universe playing that iconic role. Um, and no one else has gotten him to sign cards. And to me, that card, that either, well, there's two of them. There's one of him right. as as... The human and there's the other of him and of the the uh and the, the iron man mm. armor um you know it's kind of hard to top that in terms of anything connected to the movies yeah because i always come back to whenever whenever i'm working on these franchises that have never been you know like adequately exploited or ever been exploited before like when I, when i took over the star trek franchise from Ken Baroff, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with Ken. I don't know if he remember this specifically, but you know, he was trans, we were transitioning the, you know, from him being the guy to me being the guy with Star Trek. And, and I remember him saying to me, you know, I've made all these Star Trek sets over the years. And I just, I kind of feel like, you know, I've run out of ideas and it's, it's a good time to, to move on to something else. Mm. And what I, I didn't, say this to him at the time because i didn't want to make him feel bad um was dude you're doing me the greatest favor in the world because there is everything left to do with star trek that hasn't been done and you know one of the first things that i that i wanted to do was an original series card set that you know we know william shatner had never signed autograph mm. cards before leonard nimoy had never signed cards before all of those cast members, you know, I got the first crack at that. So, you know, in terms of Marvel, I mean, I, I got, I got Robert Downey to, to do, you know, what needed to be done there. And I think in the long term, this is my own point of view. That card is, is arguably the 
the single most important Marvel trading card outside of anything that Stan Lee ever did for us. I think that's the single most important Marvel trading card that's ever been made. So, you know, when I, when I view something in that regard, what else do I want to do? You know, like when Stan did the first sketch cards for us, he did those half Spidey heads. I think they were. And, and then, you know, in a future project, I asked him to do other sketch cards, but I didn't want him to just repeat what he had already done. So, you know, I asked him to do other characters, which he, he did, um, which made it more fun mm. and I think more interesting for collectors too. Um, I don't know if I can give you a better answer than that. No. Um, well, listen, mission accomplished is a pretty good answer. That's what I'm taking from it. I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I mean, you have, you've kind of nailed it. You know, you've, you've hit that high. I mean, not you had the Iron Man armor as well. Within. Yeah, that was pretty cool. We got lucky. The studio gave those us some of that cards. material, yeah. and and we uh, we obviously took advantage of making those cards. Yeah. Um. That and some of the other, um, costume materials from that first movie. Um. I remember Jeff. We had Jeff Bridges tie. Um. I think from that movie. You had his shirt as well. Um. And his sh- and his shirt. Um. I mean, there's probably a handful of actors from those movies who have never signed cards. I don't know how many of them, because I've sort of stopped paying attention yeah. to it. That, I don't think that Jeff Bridges was... is signed again. Yeah, he was a good... Ryan Reynolds, he never signed, as far as I know, for anybody else. And no. He, he did sign cards for us for the Wolverine movie. That's right. Um, now, you know, aside from what I said before about a lot of times these actors want to give something back to the fans and acknowledge the fans, and that all I think is true. I believe that. Um, but, you know, you could also ask yourself the question, well, if that's, if that's true, why aren't they signing cards for anybody else? Because, you know, the, the fans don't exist, you know, within my control. They exist, you know, for, mm. you know, the world at large. Um, and I think the answer to that is that because we are an entertainment card company and because I have been doing autograph deals with talent now exclusively, almost exclusively within the entertainment segment. Um, I mean, I, I estimated recently, I think we, we've done something like 3000, autograph card deals in the 25 years almost that we've been wow. in business wow. um, with, with actors. Now um, there's nothing to do with sports stars or anything like that. Mm. And we've worked with pretty much every major and most even minor talent agencies in the U S and in the UK and, um, it's been it's been a repetitive relationship building process. So, you know, a lot of times when I approach the agent for somebody like a Robert Downey Jr. or a Ryan Reynolds, it's somebody that I've worked with before on another gotcha. project, probably yeah. for for someone who for actors of of lower stature, not to diminish anybody's career, um, but. 
you know, it makes it easier for us to get those deals done mm. and for them to say yes, because we pay our bills. We, you know, we follow through, we do what needs to get done. You know, they also know, you know, the way we go about our, our business with the, the cards being signed on card instead of stickers, yeah. you know, it doesn't stop some people from signing stickers. Um, I just personally don't like them. And, I don't think we, with maybe one or two very minor exceptions for very specific reasons that we that we got something done on us, not even a sticker. Um, but anyway, the, all the autographs pretty much have been on card. Mm. We just don't do stickers, and um, and and that's that's a quality issue too that resonates with some of these people. Absolutely. Um, so you know we're able to get things done a lot of times where other companies who might you know have success landing the franchise for trading cards. And now now the reality sets in. Well, can you get the key people to sign cards? And it doesn't always work out. But it you know thankfully for us, I mean, knock on wood, you know, like we. We've been able to get pretty much, with few exceptions, pretty much everybody that we've pursued. There's, there really are not too many uh, actors that we've ever wanted to sign cards for us who didn't say yes. And it, it'll again, it, it, a lot of it comes down to those relationships. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, that that's absolutely remarkable. And you know, personally speaking, I think I can safely speak for um, everyone listening and watching uh, the. Uh, the the approach that you take and the the you know, the pride and the respect that you take for the set, Marvel and otherwise, is is very much appreciated. So you know, thank you, thank, thank for you. that. Um, it really is. It really is a pleasure to 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 speak to you. Um, SciFiHobby.com is your website. Um, so it is. we will put that in the show notes. I think everyone knows about it anyway because they're always going there to, well, they used to go there <laughs> quite I, often in I, the Marvel. I world. would hope that most people who are watching this would know well, know how to find us. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely helpful. Well, yeah, there's there's always listen. I was always I used to work in West End Theatre, and I was I was always told that it doesn't matter if you've sold tickets for the three hundredth show of Lemmes; it's always someone's first time seeing it. So. You know, that's that's the approach I like to take. Good, good point. Um, um, all right, Steve, I will let you go. Thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, yep, do you remember? Do you remember how I said we sign off our shows? Uh... And this is this is where <laughs> I always say to people that they might want to write it down. It's it's enjoy collecting. Oh, enjoy collecting. Perfect. Oh, you know what? <laughs> Definitely enjoy collecting. But collect what you collect what you love. Collect what makes you happy, and you know what? If you can make money as part of it, if the financial part of it works out, great. But you know, it's one of the. I, I don't mean to to make a speech here as we're about no, to sign you, off. You carry on. But, okay, but but here's here's what I will say is that one of the reasons that I've stuck with this business as long as I have is that we do make people happy. And that the fundamental motivation for collecting the cards that we make is not financial. It's not because, you know, you're busting open packs and, oh, look what I got. And I'm going to throw it on eBay. Yes. It's like busting open packs. Oh, look what I got. It's going in my album. That's the difference. And it's because the people that I interact with regularly and who collect our cards have that 
have that approach that that keeps me going because we're 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 making them happy. They're building their collections. They're they're not just turning around and you know it's it's not it's not about the money as much as it is about just finding stuff that that finding cards that makes them happy and adds to their collections. So mm. oh, there well. you go. You've absolutely made me very happy. I mean, I can't even begin to. If, if, if we had days, I'd go for every single card in there and tell you a story. But I won't. I'll let you go. <laughs> Thank you so much. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Take care. It. Thank yep. you, Steve. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Marvel Card Collectors Podcast. Tasting notes and visuals for each episode can be found on our Facebook page. We're on most social media at The MCC Pod, and you can also watch the video of each episode recording on our YouTube channel. Leave us a voicemail via our home on anchor.fm forward slash MCCP. We're also on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms. Please take a second to subscribe, like, and review our show wherever you find us. Our Facebook community is at MCCW Marvel Car Collectors Worldwide and MMC Marvel Masterpieces Collectors. The great music we use on our audio version is called Rocket Power by Kevin McLeod. Thanks to the collectors, artists and creators who support the Marvel Cards Fan Collective. We'll see you next time and remember, it's a small hobby but a fun one. Make mine Marvel and enjoy collecting.